0: Tide greetings and welcome to Pick Six Movies, where each season we select six, yes, six movies, all related to one single theme. We examine the history of the people in front of and behind the camera to try to make sense of how and why each movie was made, and then we discuss each one in exhaustive detail to see if they're any good. I'm Chad Cooper, and along with my holly jolly co-host Beau Ransdell, this season's theme is The War on Christmas, Movies where we are taking on six beloved, revered, and cherished classic holiday, I mean, Christmas movies. This is episode two, and we're heading down Holiday Road with National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. This movie is a Christmas favorite in many households, and watching it is as familiar a tradition as trimming the tree and hanging up stockings. I, however, am not among that group of holiday merrymakers, as I think this movie is total humbug, and I know of at least one other person who shares this opinion. Well, Who could that be? it's the Ebenezer to my Scrooge none other than Mr. Bo Ransdell himself. And speaking of Bo, let's turn this episode over to him and invite him to come in, come in and know this film better, man, as he introduces us to the subject of this episode, 1989's National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. On
1: January 13th, 1979, in Chicago, Illinois, it was starting to snow. The weatherman predicted 2-4 to four inches, so no one was expecting much out of the ordinary. This post-Christmas blow should have come and gone, but it would be responsible for five deaths, an historic mayor, and the movie we're discussing tonight. Before those snowflakes fall, though, let's catch up with one of the heroes of our story and dial the Wayback Machine even further to February 8th, 1950, and the birth of John Wilden Hughes, Jr., John Hughes Sr. was a salesman, and in those days, that meant he was a bit of a vagabond. Some of that wandering spirit crept into Hughes himself, who bemoaned his early years as being sadly lonely as a result of this nomadic lifestyle. Beginning in Gross Point, Michigan, Hughes would later move with his family to Northbrook, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. There, his father would sell roofing materials, and Hughes, the younger, would soak up the world around him. The comings and goings of the jocks and cheerleaders, the nerds and the burnouts, these were the threads from which Hughes would weave his legacy. But first, he would go to Arizona. He didn't make it all the way through the University of Arizona, but abandoning college left Hughes scrambling to figure out what the hell to do with himself. He ended up selling some jokes to Rodney Dangerfield and Joan Rivers, some of the most popular comedians of the day, And those sales cinched him a job at Needham, Harper, and Steers in 1970, an advertising firm looking for copywriters. In 1974, five years before the snow, he moved to another ad firm, Leo Burnett Worldwide, where he worked on an account for Virginia Slims, the fancy lady cigarettes that are mild enough for mom, but strong enough for dad when no one's looking and he's out of Pall Malls. The gig with Virginia Slims took him to New York on business, but Hughes was more interested in visiting the offices of National Lampoon, the comedy magazine that had truly defined comedy for a generation. Look, the history of National Lampoon is too long to get into here, but there are some great documentaries and books on the subject, including the film Drunk, Stoned, Brilliant, Dead, and the heartbreaking and hilarious book A Feudal and Stupid Gesture. Suffice it to say, the original staff of National Lampoon was essentially the first writer's room of Saturday Night Live. Its influence cannot be overstated, and it's small wonder that Hughes wanted to be part of it. He struggled for the key that would unlock the lampoon, the essay or the story that would open up a new world to him, something besides the drudgery of advertising work, something meaningful. And on January 13th, 1979, it began to snow. It snowed and snowed and it snowed. The 2 to 4 inches predicted became 38 hours of near-constant snow. The depth peaked around 29 inches. The city of Chicago shut down. Somewhere, a snowplow driver was going berserk and ramming cars hidden beneath the snow, along with a man, one of the five people to die during this blizzard. Elsewhere, the city was turning on its mayor and the poor response from civic services. In the home of John Hughes, though, an idea was forming. The story was called, simply, Vacation 58. It is the story of Clark W. Griswold and his four children and their journey from Michigan to California for a magical vacation at Disneyland. Only, it quickly descends into theft, dog murder, gunplay in Walt Disney's backyard, and prison. And it is very funny. The story, written over the course of The Blizzard, would change Hughes' life forever. He got that job at the National Lampoon and was even tapped to work on a screenplay for the follow-up to Animal House called Class Reunion. It's Hughes's first credited screenplay, and the movie did not do so well. But, in the same year, Hughes also wrote Mr. Mom, a movie about a working dad who is forced to become a stay-at-home dad and learn about what a jerk he is to his wife. Only a year after that, in 1983, he wrote another film for National Lampoon, this one based on the short story written during the great Chicago blizzard, Vacation 58. Retitled National Lampoon's Vacation, the film was directed by Harold Ramis, also a National Lampoon alumnus, and starred another National Lampoon alum, Chevy Chase as Clark Griswold. It was a real Lampoon family affair. Initially, studios weren't interested in making Vacation due to its episodic nature, but a guy named Mark Canton at Warner Brothers got it, and he fought hard to get that movie made. When released, Vacation topped the box office, and received pretty good reviews, too. The Lindsay Buckingham song Holiday Road was burned into everyone's brains, and everyone laughed too hard at the bit about the dog tied to the bumper. Word to the wise... The dog bit is much more explicit in the original story, and I kind of prefer it, which tells you all you need to know about me. Anyways, Vacation put National Lampoon back on the comedy map and made John Hughes, who had also penned Mr. Mom by this time, remember, a very hot commodity. What John Hughes is most known for, of course, are the teen comedies he wrote and directed, beginning with 16 Candles in 1984, a year after Vacation. Next came The Breakfast Club, the seminal teen comedy of the 80s, then Weird Science and Pretty in Pink and Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Some Kind of Wonderful. There were some others mixed in, including the first Vacation sequel, European Vacation, which would do well financially, but sync with critics who complained that the physical comedy moved front and center of what should have been a defter parody. Hughes only co-wrote this one, and Amy Heckerling of A Night at the Roxbury fame directed that one. While Hughes may have moved away from teen comedies by the late 80s, he still penned and directed some outstanding work, including the highly underrated She's Having a Baby and the rated Just Right Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. After that, there are more misses than hits in my estimation. Curly Sue, Dennis the Menace, Home Alone, all fine for lightweight entertainment, but the voice of a generation just didn't seem to have that much to say anymore. These were just run-of-the-mill, sporadically entertaining comedies. In 1989, it was time to take another bite at that griswold apple. Nine years before, John Hughes wrote a follow-up to Vacation 58 entitled Christmas 59. It's both less funny and way more racist than the original story. I mean, thieving Taiwanese racist. Also, a worse thing happens to a dog. It's not terrible, just very, very dated... And uninspired when compared to the original Vacation story. When Warner Brothers approached Hughes to write Christmas Vacation, he said, "I only agreed because I had a good story to base it on." But those movies have become little more than Chevy Chase vehicles. End quote. Chris Columbus, who had directed Adventures in Babysitting, was tapped to direct Christmas Vacation, but dropped out due to Chevy Chase being a tremendous asshole. The job then fell to music video director Jeremiah Chechik, most notable for having done the music video for When It's Love by Van Hagar, not Van Halen. The movie was a hit, climbing to number one over Back to the Future 2 after a few weeks of release. It's now widely considered a comedy classic and a Christmas mainstay, but we'll get to that stuff. First, let's tie up some loose threads. The blizzard from before claimed five lives and resulted, indirectly, in Christmas Vacation. But it's not all tragic. Because of the perceived bungling of the blizzard from a governmental perspective, the current mayor, Michael Belandick, lost his bid for the Democratic primary in Chicago in 1979. On April 3rd, Chicago voted for its next mayor and the winner was, naturally, a Democrat. This is still the city of Richard Daly, after all. But the Democrat who won was named Jane Byrne. That's right. The same blizzard that stuck John Hughes home alone to write Vacation 58 also contributed to the election of Chicago's first female mayor. Way to go, blizzard. I mean, except for all those people who died. As for John Hughes, you know what? Let's come back to him. There's more story to tell, and this very season will tell more of it. For now let's turn our attention to the third entry into the Vacation franchise, and the only one to have a direct-to-video sequel of its very own. That's right, a thing called Christmas Vacation 2, Cousin Eddie's Island Adventure, is a thing that is real and cannot be unmade. But why was Christmas Vacation so popular in the first place? Is it really a Christmas classic? Is it even funny? To help me answer these questions and more... I now welcome my old pal Chad to join in these Griswold games as we look at 1989's National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Hey everyone, welcome back to uh, Pick Six Movies. I am Bo uh and of course, with me as ever, my faithful companion, the the Vana to my white uh, Chad Cooper. How are you, sir?
2: I'm doing fantastic, Bo. It's always good to talk with you about crappy Christmas
0: movies.
1: Sure, uh, yeah, this movie is insistent. I'll give it that. So we're obviously talking about 1989's National Lampoon's uh, Christmas Vacation. This is a beloved film by many.
2: I told a couple of people what we were doing for this season and when I mentioned this one, eyebrows went up. Why would you do that? Like I love I love this movie. Why would you make fun of
1: this series of dick jokes? <laughs> let's just get right into it we start with a cartoon which is an animated sequence of santa claus going about his christmas business checking lists and whatnot while a jazzy christmas song is playing question number one that i have with this film is as he's making the list like all these names are checked except for griswold And yet,
2: somehow, does he end up in the Griswold's house? Is that where all this is taking place? One would assume that that's the case. I went back and just sort of looked at what the hell was going on with this sequence. And one thing to note was that in 1989, there were three movies that came out that had animated title credits. There was Troop Beverly Hills starring Shelley Long. uh, And that one was actually animated by John... Craig Falusi? And it's got a really sexy female scout leader in it, and he really was able to hub a hub it up. But then nice. a, a couple of months later, Honey I Shrunk the Kids came out in June of that same year. And I've got a sneaking suspicion that those two movies with these animated intros were influential into why you see this animated sequence for this particular film. But again, you know, to your point, the opening is kind of fun and silly and inconsequential. In my opinion, it was reflective of the movie as a whole, meaning that Let's just sort of take a character, put him in a random situation, which in this case is Santa Claus, and then just constantly let him get screwed over and beat up and knocked down and made the butt of every joke. Be it a physical joke or just sort of, you know, witty barbs or double entendres, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe there's some similarities (laughs) between what happens to Santa and what happens to Clark Griswold. You know, it, it doesn't really matter at all at the end of the day.
1: After our little Christmas cartoon. Where Santa is getting attacked by a house. The Christmas song that's playing is just entitled Christmas Vacation, apparently. Because the singer just screams
2: Christmas Vacation at you by the end of this song. Until you're like,
1: Jesus Christ, all right, I
2: give up. For a while there, I always felt that those songs for the Spike Lee movies, Stevie Wonder, would just conjugate a verb. I got jungle fever, you got jungle fever, we got jungle Uh. fever. And then a few years later, it was, I got game, you got game, we got game. The Public Enemy classic, yes. Which contains one of my favorite lines in rap
1: ever, which is, be on the lookout for spirit snipers trying to steal your light. And that's just good advice, Chad.
2: Hold on, I'm going to write that one down. (laughs) Let's get into the movie proper. We start off with the Griswolds in the, uh, is it the family truckster from the original movie? And the two children have now been recast for the third time in this movie franchise, which I like that in the vacation films you know it sort of enabled them to take this family and make them timeless you know with the adults aging as slightly as they would but being able to keep the kids at their respective ages
1: yeah i'm fine with that it's sort of like swapping darrens on you but i get it
2: russ is played by johnny galecki Who went on to Roseanne and Big Bang Theory? We have Audrey played by Juliet Lewis, who went on to Cape Fear and Gilbert Grape and many other movies. Beverly D'Angelo is the mom Ellen, as she is in all of these films. And Chevy Chase is our father of the family, Clark Griswold. So those are our four principal family players.
1: I can't look at Juliet Lewis as a child because when I do, I think Cape Fear. You know, I expect like Max Cady to be in the jumper seat in the back of the family truckster, just like You ever take your top off in front of a grown man? Max Katie, laughing at Problem Child. (laughs) (laughs) It's truly the the pinnacle of filmmaking. I mean, Martin (laughs) Scorsese's a genius. So they're in the family truckster, and they're off to buy a Christmas tree. And Clark is being trailed by a pickup truck. And at first, he's like, go around. As they do, he gives them the bird, and then they start... Screwing with him, and the next thing you know, the family truckster is turd Fergusoning under a truck where it, it's like mm-hmm. a, a semi comes along, and the family truckster ends up beneath that for a second. And all of this culminates like none of this means nothing. And all of this culminates in the family truckster going off the road. Jumping in, uh, into the air, a la the original Vacation in the Desert, it lands skidding to a stop in the parking lot of a Christmas tree cellar. That's our slam action sequence to open up Christmas Vacation.
2: One of the things in this opening sequence that really struck me was a question around, is this movie competently directed as a comedy? And what I mean by that is, you know, in the opening of this one, they're riding in the car and Clark and Ellen are singing Deck the Halls and they throw it to their kid and say, you know, take it, Russ. And there's this pregnant pause. And then they jump back in with the fa la 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 -la. It's a very funny, well-timed bit. And it's like that is the mark of a good comedic director or a good comedic writer. It's a tight funny situational moment that really works. And in it, when we first meet Clark Griswold in this scene before the, you know, the crash of it, Chevy Chase is really good as Clark Griswold when he plays this character as the lovable, goofy, well-meaning dad. And at the beginning, he does this in the setup. The problem is that throughout the film, you don't know which Clark Griswold you're going to get from scene to scene. It might be goofy Clark or happy Clark, but then we might get angry Clark. Maybe it's smart Clark, stupid Clark, asshole Clark, adulterous Clark, pathological liar Clark. It feels like all of these episodic moments... He's just playing the character based on his actual mood of the day. Yeah,
1: you're 100% right. We'll get to one of everyone's favorite moments in the movie here in a minute where he's telling everyone, like, kiss my ass, kiss your ass, kiss his ass, you know, that bit. Um, It comes in direct opposition to a scene that happens later with his boss.
2: Clark should be a lovable goofball. You, the audience should be rooting for him. He should be a character whose heart is is always in the right place with the best of intentions, but ends up bumbling his way through life. He should be SpongeBob SquarePants, or he should be Lloyd Christmas or Harry Dunn from Dumb and Dumber. But instead, you know, we don't really get this, this kind-hearted soul that's ever present. We get this character that is almost willing to turn on a dime and look at you and say, go fuck yourself.
1: That's why you can see such fear in Beverly D'Angelo's eyes in this movie, is that she's not sure which Clark is coming home. Yeah. Is it, I'm going to drink too much Clark tonight? <laughs> you know, like, Russ, don't tell your your father about your math grade until we've had a chance to feel him out a little. <laughs> He's either not going to care and maybe help you with your homework, or he might murder us all.
2: Prior to them crashing their car, uh, their kid, Russ uses this narrative device that drives me crazy he looks at his dad and goes hey dad can you explain to me again why we're doing this you know so the (laughs) audience has an understanding of what the hell's going on in the movie
1: again this goes into the fact that everyone's walking on fucking eggshells around this guy so when he shows up it's like hey kids we're all gonna get in the car and drive somewhere they're like all right dad yeah that sounds like a good idea (laughs) just crossing their fingers wishing on a star chad that this isn't the time he drives into the other lane
2: <laughs> which actually this was the time that he drove into the other lane right
1: but they walked away from it and that's the real surprise that's the <laughs> christmas miracle
2: <laughs> there's another thing that happens in this movie that really pisses me off i'm I'm, gonna, I'm going back a bit there's a scene where Clark is going to pull in front of these, you know, rednecks in their pickup truck. He makes the comment that he's going to burn dust and tells these rednecks to eat my rubber. And when you hear it, like, oh, that's funny, he mixed up the words and that's the joke. But then his son immediately says, oh, uh, dad, I think you meant to say burn rubber and eat my dust. And it's like, don't explain the joke. Right. Don't do that. You either get the joke or you don't.
1: There is not a subtle bone in this movie's body, Chad. Don't kid yourself. Anything that can be telegraphed will be. When they show up at this Christmas tree light, here's another point where I had to keep going back when I was watching this. Like, did I miss something? What the fuck is happening here? Because they sh- they go to a Christmas tree lot, right? There's a big sign that says trees on it. And then they hike way the hell out in the middle of nowhere to get a Christmas tree. Like, why drive to the lot then? Why not
2: just wander into the woods if all you were going to do was not pay for a tree and cut something down? Well, the reason they had to wander off into thigh-high snow was so that everyone could bitch for about a... 60 to 90 seconds of the movie because audrey bitches russ bitches <laughs> ellen bitches about this about how awful it is and then clark eventually finds the perfect tree encased in this glow of golden light and his family is completely unimpressed you know clark goes on about how this is a family tradition and blah blah blah, and then russ asks if his dad brought a saw to cut down the tree <laughs> and we get a nice <laughs> boy
1: when that happened in this movie i almost turned it off I was almost like, I can't do it.
2: That's a sound effect cousin to the rim shot.
1: <laughs> Just hey, hang on to your hats, folks, because there's some xylophone right around the corner if you didn't think this movie was wacky enough.
2: And trust me, a little bit later, we're going to get some spit takes to let oh. you know when a joke happens.
1: I mean, for the love of shit. There is a whole bit here with like Juliet Lewis being comically frozen that doesn't last from shot to shot in this scene because sometimes she's all like brr and then other times they'll do a wide shot and she's just loose as a goose man just hanging
2: out again they didn't have a saw to cut down the tree so we come back to the family truckster and there's this 20 foot tall tree strapped to the top of the car that has been removed from the earth by its roots now look it's a funny visual But how did they get this thing out of the ground? Did they just dig it up with their hands?
1: Yeah, I assume that, you know, because Audrey had no feeling in her hands, they used her as an impromptu shovel.
2: That would have taken
1: days. Right, I mean, much less drag out of there, like... None of it adds up. I don't know why they went to a Christmas tree lot to then go into the woods. I don't know why we're bitching about paying for Christmas trees when he was driving to a Christmas tree lot. Further, I don't know how they removed the Christmas tree that they ultimately did not get from the Christmas tree lot. I got a lot of problems with this scene.
2: Fade to black, cut to their house. We have neighbors, Margo and Todd. Right, the guy who's not Charles Rocket. You know who it is, right? It's Nicholas Guess. It's Christopher Guest's
1: brother. Yes, but I know that because... You said, hey, that's Christopher Guest's brother. The fuck has he ever been in?
2: I think he was in some Stargate stuff, and he's done a lot of animated voice work. And he's Christopher Guest's brother. Uh, Yeah, that's cool, but, you
1: know, Jamie Lee Curtis is Christopher Guest's wife. I'm more impressed by that. (laughs)
2: Well, we got Julia Louis-Dreyfus as his wife. Now we're talking. And she was in in The New Adventures of Old Christine. I think that was her big hit, right?
1: I I was going to go troll, but... Where she played the role of nymph. Um. But, I, you know, I love Julia Louis-Dreyfus. It's nice to see her show up in a movie. And she's actually probably the most reasonable character in this film.
2: Are we supposed to not like these neighbors? And if so, why? Well, because they're they're real
1: snooty about shabby RVs spewing shit outside <laughs> their home.
2: They get pissed off when people damage their home. Like, break right. their windows and destroy their electronics. How dare they?
1: And generally lower the property value of the neighborhood. Yes,
2: what a couple of assholes right
1: what a bunch of jerks worrying about their health and well-being
2: so we're at this the griswold house and uh the neighbors come home and they kind of to some degree sort of mock the uprooted tree that's in the griswold's yard and then the garage door opens and clark comes out wearing a hockey mask and he's wielding a chainsaw like some sort of movie serial killer and todd the neighbor says hey griswold where are you going to put a tree that big which is a reasonable question to which (laughs) asshole clark shows goes up and says, bend over and I'll show you. Are we supposed to like Clark Griswold at this point in the movie?
1: right? The Chainsaw-wielding sociopath? Um, <laughs> yeah, because there's this look that he has on his face a couple of times in this movie, and it, you'll know the, the, the move I'm talking about. When he's saying something, or, like, we're gonna be happy, like, we're gonna have a good time, and it's supposed to be a sincere line, but he widens his eyes a little bit on the end of the line, <laughs> where it's like, oh, he just looks fucking crazy in this movie. There's some of that and like peppered all through it but in this scene too there's one of those moments of like let's cut the tree and those eyes widen up and you're just like fuck he's gonna kill all of them (laughs) he's gonna start (laughs) with the neighbors but as soon as that happens and he knows he's never gonna get away with it the kids go first then ellen then him
2: We come back inside their house and somehow he's dragged, I don't know what portion of this tree that he chopped up on the front lawn indoors. Clark cuts this rope that's wrapped around the tree to unfurl it and it smashes out multiple windows in their house. And have you ever broken a window in your home? (laughs) No, not yet. But
1: when it happens, it's going to fuck my life up. It
2: is an immediate crisis of just... Oh, fuck. (laughs) You got to clean up broken glass. You got to cover the broken window to keep out bugs and theoretical weirdos from getting into your home. And then you're like, I got to call. A glass guy, I guess, to come fix this. I don't know how to fix this shit. Yeah,
1: it's like having your car break down on the road or something. Of like, this may be nothing, but this totally screws up my next day and a half.
2: Clark's inside the tree because it explodes out. And he just starts commenting on how much sap is in there. Which, first off, he would have already known this from when they dragged it across the tundra back to his car. And when he got it indoors. So the next scene, we have Clark and Ellen in bed. And we get some real Chevy Chase comedy gold watching him turn the pages Of a magazine, and they stick because of the sap on his fingers.
1: Let me say this I don't care for that build-up, but the ultimate gag of him touching her hair and kissing her goodnight and then the immediate lamp bit? I I laughed. I think that's funny. Like, that's a, like, one-two-three kind of punch of this joke, and I think it's pretty well done.
2: The one thing about this scene that really got me was Chevy Chase's pajamas that have pink, green, and purple dinosaurs on them. Is he some sort of man-child? And he gets to have sex with Beverly D'Angelo? None of that adds up.
1: Why? Why Ellen Griswold is staying with Clark other than... Fear? Yeah, who has been living under the shadow of his mental illness for so long that she just can't see a way out anymore. She's there for the kids. The next day at work, here's another thing that I didn't understand in this movie, no matter how many times I watch it, I get fooled by the same thing, which is there's a scene with Clark and his work buddy, as played by Sam McMurray from The Simpsons, and I don't ever remember that they're not workplace rivals, because Sam McMurray kind of gives him the business in this scene a little bit, but then Clark starts talking about whatever division he's doing is doing some top secret something something or other that works through an osmotic pain or whatever. And you're like, "Oh, he sounds like he's good at his job," which maybe. I mean, like he's in, like we were talking about before, he's an idiot in some scenes and in this scene he's surprisingly smart. Sam McMurray just totally blanks out on him It's is just like, "This is boring as shit. All right, good job, Clark. Later." <laughs> and <laughs> But it does, two things stand out to me in this scene. One, drinking coffee from a Tasmanian devil coffee mug in a movie produced by Warner Brothers feels a tad too cynical even for me. This ain't gonna cost nothing, right?
2: I didn't even make that connection. I just was thinking, what kind of a adult drinks out of a mug like this? Right. You don't do that. Especially a guy, again, he sounds fairly
1: competent when he's talking about the job he does
2: his buddy asks him hey what are you going to do with that bonus check you get this year clark says i'm gonna put in a swimming pool and his coworker says you know what you're the last true family man which isn't true because later we're going to see that clark wants to have sex with someone who isn't his wife and i don't know that he has any meaningful conversations with his daughter in this movie and the only interaction <laughs> he has with his son is to use him as free labor to put up christmas decorations so let's just pump the brakes on that you're the last great family man actor
1: Oh, yeah. Also, we find out pretty quickly that he has put a deposit on this pool.
2: He wrote a check for $7,500 that he doesn't have the money in the bank to cover. Right. That's a felony, man. You got <laughs> a check for over 500 bucks. You're going to jail. Yeah,
1: that's that's three to five jack so brian doyle murray shows up as the boss this is the bit where like a bunch of people are trailing after him a bunch of yes men types and as he passes by clark is saying merry christmas to his boss and then as the other you know sort of peons walk by that's where we get the gag about like all right merry christmas kiss my ass kiss your ass kiss his ass you know that bit and like i don't understand the joke here maybe i'm more the fool am i but it's like okay does he why is He's sucking up to his boss but very clearly fucking with the guys whispering in his boss's ear all the time
2: this must be a lovely place to work you know where your boss is a tyrant and people <laughs> just openly tell each other to kiss their ass if this was your first day on the job and someone was showing you around this is where you'll be sitting and you know the coffee maker is over there and we have keurig and 27 kinds of coffee so that's it's wonderful um that tiny monster of a man over there screaming profanity uh at that overgrown man child about egghead bullshit well that's our boss mr shirley and the guy telling everybody uh with the boss to kiss his ass well he's the star of our movie so that's good to know and on On Fridays, you can wear jeans. It's a fun place to work. I think you're going to fit in nicely.
1: Also, Mr. Shirley is never going to know your name, so just don't take it personal. I've been working as his assistant for 14 years. My name is Paul, and he's called me Dennis for the last seven.
2: There's a bit where he calls Clark all manner of names. At one point in the movie, he calls him Greaseball. (laughs) which i was like why did he call him greaseball like is that a freudian slash racist slip which that yes it's just a cheap easy way to say hey this boss does not care about his employees not only from his his actions but even his voice it's brian dole murray which i like him a lot and a lot of times he plays this type of character like what do you think after all the kiss assing uh in
1: the office we get some shots that had me spooked chad because it's shots of christmas time in a store there's money changing hands their cash registers opening up I'm like shit this is gonna be another movie about commercialism fuck (laughs) and then Chad I was wrong because it's a scene about tits
2: I already don't like Clark Griswold and this makes me actively question his motives throughout the entire film here's what goes down he is in this shopping mall in a store and this pretty female store clerk approaches Clark and he is creepily looking at women's underwear in a glass display case and it's Here that we get to see chevy chase do what he does best with his signature brand of physical comedy dolloped on top of that a barrage of wordplay and freudian slips this female store clerk who is wearing a marginally low-cut blouse asks can i show you something seems like a reasonable question to me and the first words out of clark griswold's mouth are i was just smelling uh smiling this woman should immediately call security if there is a guy in the ladies lingerie section whose first words are i was just smelling uh smiling what it's disgusting here's the thing that bothers me most
1: about all of this is the number of people who are like i watch christmas vacation with my family
2: every christmas i'm like you mean the tits movie his next line is i was just blouse up browsing because again the store clerk's aforementioned low-cut top and you can see some very slight cleavage it's not over the top it's this isn't elvira mistress of the dark hustling panties at christmas time and this store clerk asks clark is this for your wife or your girlfriend? And Clark is just entranced by this woman's beauty and he proceeds to dab his brow with a pair of women's underwear to remove the flop sweat that is beating on his forehead. And first off, you better buy those panties now because nobody wants to have a pair of underwear covered up with your sweat and God knows what else. Clark manages to make things worse and says, well, it wouldn't be the Christmas season if the stores weren't any less hooters or hotter than they are. Outside of the restaurant chain and Al officially of which I'm sure there is some overlap. Who uses the word hooters? It's like knockers, only worse. Southern people who smoke a lot of pot. I'm going to work on a Venn diagram of restaurant chain employees, al aficionados, and southerners that smoke a lot of pot and try to figure out what percentage of those three circles overlap in there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a guy named Derek. He, <laughs> he lives in Arkansas.
2: <laughs> What can I say, man? I like hot wings, rolling a big fat hooter. this female store clerk at this point realizing that she's dealing with a pervert who creeps around wiping women's underwear on his face in between getting a good sniff of fresh panty Clark at this point notes that it's really hot in here and the woman says well you have your coat on and Clark responds how did that happen and she's having none of this shit her response was it's cold outside she's done with him and then Clark says well it's a bit nipple nipply I mean nippy out this joke should stop here and now we are on verse four or five of this song and I'm already tired of it but wait glenn fry has a guitar solo coming clark erupts with nervous laughter and acknowledges his comment by asking out loud what am i saying nipple this store clerk who is standing over a glass case full of women's underwear then politely asks him can i take something out for you clark's eyes explode out of his head his tongue unfurls like a long red carpet he removes a mallet from his pocket and begins to beat himself about the head would be the logical thing that would happen the illogical thing that happens which is what occurs in this movie Clark then implies that his wife is dead by saying God rest her soul why would he do this is he hoping to have sex with this woman
1: yes he is wantonly attempting adultery in this scene I don't want to get ahead of you here Chad but I think it's important to point out that the scene does not end with his son catching him none of this makes sense there's no logical end to the the scene because this scene does not belong in this movie where our protagonist is saying that his wife is dead so he can fuck a store clerk, you know, slash part-time model, his oldest male son, his heir, <laughs> sees him trying to commit adultery
2: and it's just like... <sighs> Aw, oh, dad. He's not surprised by it. No. <laughs> or maybe he he knows that if he is surprised, his dad's going to cut him at night when he sleeps because his father's a maniac.
1: Guess what I did last night, Russ? I slept under your bed for no reason. You slept right through it all. But I was there the whole time, son. <laughs>
2: <laughs> at one point in this conversation with this store clerk, he says there's only a few more days left until adultery. I mean, uh, adulthood, which is to say Christmas, uh, you know, and Yule Log. I mean, Log. I mean, i don't have a log he's talking about the size of his dick to this woman what is wrong with
1: you yeah it makes him a completely unlikable character and it goes on forever
2: when his kid walks up the woman i think because she's just toying with him now she realizes that this person is just a weirdo that belongs on the internet which doesn't exist yet in the the timeline of this movie and she hikes up her skirt and shows him the high cut of her underwear and that's when his kid rolls up and is like hey dad what you doing eyebrows eyebrows and he's just like holy shit you know The jig's up, but insane, whatever. There's no consequence to this. Everyone knows the
1: score here. He's gonna do what he's gonna do until the day he snaps and the police finally take him down, or it's suicide by <laughs> cop. One or the other.
2: We come back to the house, and it's here that both sets of grandparents show up because they're all staying at the house. This was discussed earlier during the tree sap magazine, you know, shenanigans in the bed earlier. Both of the sets of grandparents show up. I was wondering, you know, did they carpool together or did they just happen to show up at the exact same time, I guess? And this scene shows the chaos of a full house you know with people in it at the holidays to sort of level set the players diane ladd plays clark's mom if you watch her in this movie she's trying to do the most with what little she's given hey clark do you wanna fuck ellen's mama (laughs) and he just starts smearing lipstick all over his face
1: everywhere i turn there's a reminder in this movie that i would rather be watching david lynch (laughs) i'll tell you one thing i like about this scene with all the kids showing up or all the parents showing up rather is that there's a great opening shot in this scene of everyone just kind of laying around and being lazy and it's sort of the calm before the storm and i think this scene does a good job of showing that and then you see these close-ups of the front door and you start to hear arguing behind it and shit like that and the doorbell rings and nobody really wants to go answer it because it's like as soon as we open this door here comes the flood and i was like oh that's a pretty well done scene in an honest to goodness christmas movie <laughs> (laughs) This would be good. Like, if Jodie Foster were directing Christmas Vacation, then, first of all, there would be way too much Robert Downey Jr. in it. But it would be great to see a real director tackling these moments where you have these emotional beats. Even (laughs) though in this scene it's kind of a joke, it's also like, yeah, there's this sense of foreboding when the family comes for Christmas, and you can do something thematically with that. Not this movie, but somebody could.
2: I think that Doris Roberts, who was the mom on Everybody Loves Raymond, she plays Ellen's mother. She does a good job with what she's given in this. I also wanted to point out that Ellen's dad is played by E.G. Marshall, or as I call him, the president from Superman 2.
1: Or as I call him, the guy what got eaten by roaches in Creepshow.
2: That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I forgot about that. Oh yeah. Oh, I'll <laughs>
1: never forget. That's burning into my brain.
2: The next scene we get Clark putting up Christmas lights, and it's December 14th, at least, I think. They use a framing device in this film where they show an advent calendar and they open little wooden doors to let us see the progression of time, which I like that in this movie. It let us lets us know, you know, kind of where we are and, and, and how far we have to go until the movie's actually gonna be over. It reminded <laughs> yeah. me of like when I saw the when I saw the doors, I knew the year that uh Jim Morrison and died and that movie ran so damn long. And I think I saw that in the theater and the air conditioning was broken and I just kept waiting for the year of his death. And when it came up, I was like, thank God. This oh, is going to be over
1: soon. That's a horrible way to see that movie. Like, that movie needs to be shown only in climate-controlled environments. You can't <laughs> you can't be sweaty and swampy watching the doors, man. You'll lose your mind.
2: So our next scene, Clark goes to put up Christmas lights. And there is snow everywhere in this town. It's on the ground. It's on the windowsill. It's on the roof, which maybe adds to the comedic peril of him putting up Christmas lights. But I got to tell you, man, if I don't have Christmas lights up and a snowstorm hits, guess what? No lights. This year, kids. Right? Who's coming by to see him? We're in, you know, under a ton of snow. In this scene where he's putting up lights, we cut back to where the two grandfathers are taking a nap and the grandmothers are making a gingerbread house. That's funny. While they're smoking, and then we cut back to him outside. Like, what was that little that little sidebar?
1: Right. Meanwhile, in another movie,
2: we go back to Clark and he's two stories high on this ladder on snow-covered ground, leaning against a snow-covered house. And Clark here uses a staple gun for what I'm guessing is the first time in his life because he is inept at doing this in any normal way. We've already seen that he's smart. He was talking about all kinds of chemistry and science at his job while he drank out of the Tasmanian devil's head. But in this scene, he's just inept and it leads to, I guess, some brief physical comedy with Chevy Chase kind of doing his physical thing.
1: And there's a ton it, of xylophone being played in this scene too.
2: It drove me mad. And it's not that scary skeleton xylophone. It's like comedic right? Xylophone. It's cartoon Boing. It's that level of xylophone. Clark is putting a staple into the roof of his house between every single light bulb on these light strands. It is going to take just as much time to get these things off as it did to put them up.
1: Oh, he never plans to stick around long enough to take these things off. This Christmas is the finale, man. In
2: this movie, we never make it to Christmas Day. We get to Christmas Eve. I think on Christmas Day, it's uh click, click, kaboom.
1: Oh, it's, you know handing out the punch to go with Christmas dinner. He's just, mothers, mothers, calm your children. That's a horrible Jonestown reference, and I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) If you've never heard the audio of that, don't.
2: Did you anticipate making a Jonestown reference (laughs) in this conversation? Send my notes. Uh, No, 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 no. but finally it's night and Clark he slips and falls off of the roof Uh, I'm guessing not for the first time that day but this time he holds onto the gutter which breaks and it sends a frozen sleeve of ice across the yard into the neighbor's house which smashes the window of Margo and Todd's home destroying all manner of electronics and then Todd and Margo come home and they're totally perplexed as to why all their shit's busted and why there's water on the floor
1: you could say their stereo was ice assinated that's in the notes (laughs) (laughs) we'll send you a picture but yeah it's it's another moment where like am i supposed to hate these people like are we punching up that these poor people just have their nice shit ruined by a a sherlock holmes level weapon
2: (laughs) They haven't done anything wrong. Maybe they're just a little high maintenance. I would
1: they're yuppity. How about that? Yuppity? They're yuppies. That, that that's how I referred to them in the notes. was Yeah, this is just that classic yuppie character. Like that that stigma of like they're young and professional and pretty. Fuck these
2: guys. I kind of thought they might be spies. Oh like, like they wear spy glasses and they have uh silver briefcases when we first meet them. Like maybe they're Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Or
1: are the Americans. It's just taking place right next door to the Griswolds. I would
2: love to see that movie. We cut to the Gris- Griswold Lawn where Clark is getting ready to turn on all these lights and Ellen's parents, along with Clark's parents, all come out on the lawn with the kids. Ellen's mom and dad each have a drink in their hand and they're bitching and complaining about Clark being a moron. So these two and I have a lot in common right now. Yeah, this is another of those moments where,
1: like, this is the the parts of the movie that ought to work. The scenes where you're showing Clark trying to make the perfect Christmas for his family. That should be the, the through line of this movie. And this scene with, like, the father and mother-in-law, parents-in-law bitching about the lights, Ellen being supportive, but also not expecting any of this to work because it's Clark. You know, like, that stuff all ought to work. It's just that it's surrounded by so many dick and tit jokes. (laughs) it gets distracted
2: not only just dick and tit jokes of minor fits of rage and destruction <laughs> and punching of things
1: right yeah i forgot about the mania
2: yeah so the whole
1: lights thing is is a bust but uh it, you know everyone goes to bed and like his father it says like you know how it is clark one of these lights one of the bulbs is out the whole strand goes out it's not your fault you know you did a good thing then we get all these shots of everyone in bed in one form or another, like is it E.G. Marshall or the other dad that has the the picture over the bunk bed where he's like, "Oh, I'm gonna crank it if I can keep still enough and not wake up my wife in the bottom bunk."
2: It's E.G. Marshall, but more importantly, is that in this bedroom, and it's the Russ's bedroom. Not only is there a supermodel above the top bunk, above the headboard, there's a giant poster of two large turtles fucking on the wall.
1: <laughs> I didn't notice that. Oh, so yeah, so concentrated on the
2: boobs. This kid's got a very specific cut of sexuality that really gets his motor running
1: right he was furry before it was cool he's like i'm gonna dress (laughs) up like a turtle and fucking get it on
2: we get this final shot of clark up on the ladder checking all of the bulbs and in the sky is this et inspired harvest moon from the planet tatooine (laughs) i mean it looks like it's about to come and crash into earth
1: right yeah like the scene ends with chevy chasing like dear god whose name i do not know
2: (laughs) i forgot how big sorry (laughs) (laughs) Ha, <laughs> We cut to the next morning and Clark is in his dino jammies and he's going to hide presents in the attic, but not before getting hit in the face with the attic door ladder. It hits him so violently that he lands on his back, feet in the air. But don't worry, he's okay. He's made of silicone or rubber or some other impervious metal endoskeleton that prevents him from suffering pain the way a normal human being would.
1: Two weeks in a row, we watch a movie where somebody could take a rocket sled to
2: a wall and just be like, boing, guess I'm all right. Clark goes up. In the attic, and while he's up there, Ellen's mom comes along and closes the door, which uses uh, the latest bank vault locking technology (laughs) to trap Clark in the attic. Not one frame of this scene makes any damn sense. How this made it into the script is a mystery for the ages. I don't see how anyone reading this script would say, So, okay, so he's in the attic, and his mother in law closes the attic door, and then he just pushes it down with his feet to open it, right? Oh, no, 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 no. It locks. Well, where does that happen? Like, on the inside? So he would just be able to flick a latch and open it up. Oh, no, 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 no. It, it Maybe it locks from the outside. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you say or show that anywhere? No, 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 man. It happens in the mind of the audience. It's avant-garde. It's a thing you think about after you leave the theater. It doesn't... Th- this doesn't even... It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, Chad. You don't get locked in attics this way.
1: Well, not in your attic or mine chad but in the home of the griswolds the attic is where you go when you're very very bad and clark griswold knows as soon as that the attic stairs float up that he is locked in there because he installed that lock himself remember kids i can lock you up there anytime no one will know you're up there
2: you can scream all you want Yeah, that thing is soundproof.
1: Right. So when he's up there, he's like, I'm fucked. There's no way out of this. I know because I made this absolutely impervious and forget the hole I made in the ceiling that I could probably crawl through. Like I've already got a hole in my ceiling. I already got to call the window guy. Now I got to call the ceiling guy. If it's a little bit bigger, a hole, who
2: cares? I stand corrected. You're right. This attic is basically the domestic equivalent of zed's basement
1: yeah he right they don't have a basement there they've got the attic you go up instead of down to do your dirty dark work (laughs) the
2: whole family leaves to go shopping right and clark's up in the uh the dungeon attic all by himself he hits himself in the face not once not twice but thrice (laughs) with a board by stepping on one end and getting smacked in the face over and over again there's only one character (laughs) in the history of ever That has made this gag funny.
1: You're right. And it's accompanied by a...
2: (sighs) That's it. Yeah. And it's not Clark (laughs) Griswold. It's such a pop for the listeners. (laughs)
1: Then we do a scene that works far better in the aforementioned Jodie Foster film, Home for the Holidays. Except in that one, it's Charles Durning watching home movies. And it fucking sings, y'all. Because Charles Durning is a national treasure.
2: Agreed with that.
1: But this is Clark Griswold watching movies of like when he was a kid in Christmas time with his parents and shit. Or just stock movies. Maybe they're the films of the people he's murdered and taken. <laughs> you know, his trophy is their home movies or something.
2: Like I remember when I killed him. I remember when I killed her. I took away
1: everything that little boy in the Christmas movies had.
2: <laughs> These type of scenes are staples in John Hughes movies. Right. It's this injection of melancholy or sentimentality or sadness or characters revealing personal life details in a moment of vulnerability. You pepper in funny 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 funny. Oh my god, how sad. Back to funny. You know, the Breakfast Club did it, Ferris Bueller Plane Strains and Automobiles, even some of his garbage movies like The Great Outdoors <laughs> and Baby's Day Out and Dennis the Menace, they all kind of do that same thing. You make them laugh, then you make them cry, and then, you know, we all sort of hug at the end, which is okay. It just seems to work very well in certain films and not so well in others. You know, for every She's Having a Baby, you know, you are turned around and you are given a curly suit.
1: Right. But you're talking about movies, by which I mean like uh, She's Having a Baby and uh, movies like that where the big emotional moment happens at the end of the film. Yes. This happens at the beginning of Act 2. Not even the end of Act 2 where you you know, like Clark learns his lesson. It doesn't belong here. It, the scene itself probably belongs in the movie. It just doesn't belong at this point in the movie because now he's going to see all these scenes of his family and think about how much he loves his family and then go on to be an asshole to him for the next... 30, 45 minutes. And you're like, so you learn nothing from this moment in your dungeon attic?
2: I was just happy that the reel-to-reels that he put on weren't either old-school porn or maybe even like a snuff film. Or just
1: pictures of children walking home from school clearly taken from <laughs> from a moving car. <laughs> <laughs> Would that be the most terrifying thing
2: yeah you're you're right that was weeping openly
1: what if if somebody at work came to you it was like let me show you this video I recorded this weekend you would immediately call the police you'd be morribly obligated to did he ever say anything about it no he just said he wanted to show it to me it was it was this little kid going home from school it clearly had a little backpack and little sneakers and the whole deal and He was rolling with him, man. He ends up getting, like, in the midst of this sad moment that is woefully out of place in the film. He finally is released when the family comes home from shopping, and Ellen, I I think, uh, is the one who opens the trap door. And because there's apparently a spring release or something as soon as she... And also, dumbass Clark is sitting on the door itself... So this is, like, let's not put the blame on the trap door here. This is just Clark being a dum-dum. Uh, but he's sitting on the door, and <laughs> Beverly D'Angelo opens it, and down he falls. And that's the end of our scene of emotion and providing uh, a moral and emotional core to our character so now let's go on and shit all over that idea for uh, the next hour or so
2: well the next scene Margot and todd come home from a workout and then that scene ends
1: yeah it the whole thing the whole thing is just them talking about fucking because he's like hey how about we get up to a little fucking and, and julia louis dreyfus is like go take a shower hit the, hit the shower stud and once you give the uh twig and berries a bit of the old house your father then you are allowed in, into the shrine that is you know JLD
2: Clark's back on his lawn and he's checking his lights and then Ellen comes out and she kind of calls him out for being outside and avoiding the family Clark then heads off to go make sure that his wire configurations are correct and Ellen is standing alone on the front lawn of the house and it's here we see Clark's mother go inside the garage I think uh, to get something out of a like a secondary refrigerator and she flips a light switch which is next to this comically dangerous number of extension cords going into one plug outlet. It's a funny visual. Yeah, sure. When the the switch gets flipped, all of the house lights just immediately illuminate. And oh, come all ye faithful plays. And Ellen is standing alone in awe of this spectacle of lights. And it's at this point, the neighbors, Todd and Margot are blinded by the lights as they're getting ready to have sex in front of this giant window that has no curtains and no blinds because they're exhibitionists who like to have sex in places where others can watch them. Good for them. Good for the neighbors.
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, if you've got that, you know, they're young, they're attractive, let the world
2: see it, you know? The Griswold house drains so much power that we see the city light grid go dark as some sort of power plant worker has to flip a switch on an auxiliary nuclear power lever. And look, man, I'm no spelling bee champ here, but the word auxiliary at this nuclear plant is misspelled. It has two L's in it. I don't know if that's worrisome. Maybe (laughs) it's just sort of a trademarked auxiliary power. You know how in this day and age of domain names, you just spell something phonetically in some wacky way and that counts. Sure. But for me, I was like, this is troublesome.
1: (laughs) That is trademarked by the local electrical company, you know, Chicago Power or whatever. With our asterisk auxiliary support, which which means we have a ninety six hour window to restore power to you in the event of a life threatening cold snap. <laughs>
2: clark's mom flips the light switch off and all the lights go dark and then clark comes back around missing that the lights had been on ellen goes inside the house and she flips the switch next to the comically dangerous number of extension cords going into one plug outlet and it's here we cue the music once again and clark is now overwhelmed with joy as he sees the lights in all their glory he calls for the whole family to come outside it's at this point ellen flips the switch off lights go out the grandparents and kids come out on the lawn there's no lights and and it's here we see Clark Griswold lose it. This happens in this movie twice. It happens here and at the very end. I feel like in this movie it should only happen once at the end of the film it should be a slow build of this well-meaning character who is ultimately pushed to the limit and then he snaps in this scene we just see a guy who's pissed off that his lights don't work and he just starts kicking the shit out of lawn ornaments that's like a santa claus and some reindeer and just in this fit of frustration and it's Uh, To your point, kind of frightening. Like, I didn't know if he was going to pull out a knife or, you know, a gun and just start massacring people on the front lawn.
1: Yeah, you're you're ready for him to pull, like, Russ onto his lap and, like, you know, you know, I love you, right, Russ? You know, you know I'd never hurt you. Huh? You know daddy'd never hurt you, right, Russ?
2: Let's go sit in the car in the garage, Russ. You mean to teach you how to drive? Well, the first thing you got to do is you got to learn to let the engine idle (laughs) for 14 to 18 hours.
1: We're going to put on... This Yes album, Russ, and we're going to write it all the way down.
2: back inside the house ellen and i say this very liberally the smart one in the family figures it out that this comically dangerous number of extension cords going into one plug outlet is connected to the light switch and then she gives it a flip and it's at this exact same moment that clark uh, has finished his destructive rampage on the front lawn and in a fit of desperation he replugs the extension cords together in one sparking ceremonious connection and it's at this point we hear the hallelujah chorus and Handel's messiah plays and it is a funny moment I truly do like this scene in this film because I feel like that many of us have been in situations like this where you have struggled very hard with a problem or a task and then it's the simplest of solutions it's this one little thing that you overlooked of the flipping of the light switch and also in this scene clark is just so overwhelmed with joy that all of his hard work is is paying off the way that he had anticipated
1: yeah it's a a good enough scene for this movie and chat the neighbors are having quite the time of it too they're trying to fuck and all these lights are coming in the window
2: Unless they're really into it and they're like, yeah, everybody can see it. Get your ass in the air. I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, a
1: joke I always want to be in this movie that's not is that the next time you see them, they're partially sunburned from from the light. <laughs> I always thought that would be a great joke and it's not in this movie. And somehow I think it is every time. Because I wrote a joke into this movie I really like.
2: Wait, you like the joke? Yeah. Yeah. You- But you don't like the movie. No, but I would
1: watch the movie, uh, maybe just to write my own jokes. Yeah, okay. You use uh, Christmas Vacation as more of a sandbox for your own comedy, Chad. (laughs) It's the Minecraft of Christmas movies.
2: In this scene... Clark goes one by one across each of the members of his family, you know, giving them a kiss, having them praise him for his hard work. And he's, you know, telling them, I hope this brings you Christmas joy. And he makes his way down the line until we get past all of them until surprisingly Clark is there with cousin Eddie played by Randy Quaid. It should be noted that we are now 41 minutes into this movie. We are essentially halfway through the film, and it is here that we get introduced to the most memorable character in this film. I think that most people remember Cousin Eddie being in this movie a lot more than he is. Kind of like how half of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is basically a bunch of singing and dancing and people trying to get their hands on golden tickets, and Gene Wilder is the best part of that damn movie, and he only shows up for the second half of the whole thing
1: right and yeah so you've got a real uh, Willy Wonka scenario with Cousin Eddie for sure
2: I'd like to see Cousin Eddie at Willy Wonka's chocolate factory like hey Wonka I'll take some of the yellow how much is the government taking of this Wonka be real with what happens if I rub some of that fizzy lifting drink on my pecker it's like carbonated Spanish fly
1: (laughs) will I float up in the air by my junk or will the rest of me hold my my floaty bits down what color's Oompa Loompa shit if their faces are purple, is their shit like an ochre? <laughs> Eddie's here <laughs> with his
2: wife and two kids. And Eddie explains how a mule kicked his daughter in the head and it made her eyes go uncrossed. His son's got a lip fungus. They have a Rottweiler named Snots.
1: Right, but th- this all fits the character because this also includes uh like the the daughter in the first one makes mayonnaise by
2: hand yeah his oldest daughter vicky in the first movie she makes his kool-aid in a jug with her arm that's right and she also talks about how she french kisses her boyfriend that we find out in the first movie is her dad so you know cousin eddie the one that we love in this movie he's pretty much an incestuous pedophile
1: there's an uncomfortable way that later in the movie he says to russ Let's go find your
2: sister. Yeah, she better look out.
1: Like, Juliet Lewis is no stranger to older men inappropriately salivating over her, but batting down the hatches, it's happening at Christmas this year.
2: He tries to kiss Ellen intimately, and she, like, dodges away. Like, she knows where this is going.
1: Now that we have two deviants in the house at the same time they're gonna clash Chad <laughs> you can't have two alpha males like this
2: Ellen offers to let Eddie and his wife and their kids stay at the house and Eddie says that he and his wife will stay in the RV but ask if the kids can stay in the house then Eddie implies that he and his wife are going to have sex in the RV and immediately that implication becomes more of an actuality as he tells his wife not to forget the rubber sheets and the gerbils I don't think he's making a joke I think that when these two have sex it essentially involves synthetically lubrication and
0: rodents
1: (laughs) yeah there's some weird shit going on in the rv when the kids aren't looking and let's be honest sometimes when they are (laughs) all right i'm gonna put this mask on you i'm gonna zip up the mouth and i'm gonna paddle you and remember The safe word is you screaming in in terror.
2: Did you ever see that video of Randy Quaid having sex with his wife while she wore that Rupert Murdoch mask? He fucked her from behind because of this feud he was having with Fox News or something. Because having seen that, it is not a stretch to toss a couple of gerbils into any act involving Randy Quaid or a character that he plays.
1: (laughs) That is neither the first nor the last time that he had sex from behind with someone in a mask
2: (laughs) back inside clark and eddie are drinking eggnog from glasses that are uh marty the moose heads from wally world which it's a nice tip of the hat to the first movie during this scene we see randy quaid in really good comedic form randy quaid is very funny in this movie and i highly recommend if you watch it whenever he's not doing anything on camera that's when you really need to pay attention to him because he has some really funny stuff that he's doing in the background or off to the side that really just shows how much of a good time he's having playing this character in this particular scene one of the things i love is his costume he's wearing this white v-neck sweater and underneath it he's wearing a black fake turtleneck and you can clearly see the outline line of the black turtleneck under the sweater it's a really funny costume gag and he also stands really close to clark when he talks to him like he's like two three inches away from his nose in his mouth
1: it is a funny performance and eddie himself as a character is this like destructive And rude and crass character that you see in the scene. But this would land better if you didn't have all the Clark, you know, kiss his ass, kiss your ass stuff from earlier. It's like, well, both of these guys are kind of jerks. Just jerks in different ways.
2: So Clark is punching up when it comes to the neighbors, but he's punching down when it comes to Cousin Eddie. Right. Right.
1: Eddie also lets it go that they're staying a month which is where we get one of your finer eggnog spit takes that you're going to see in your Christmas cinema.
2: Eddie gives my second favorite joke in this movie during this scene when he looks at the tree and he asks Clark if it's real. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know the best. You know what? I'll tell you what. I'm going to go into right now. It's not shitter's full. That's the most popular, but it's not my favorite joke in this. whole. Oh, movie.
1: no, I, I think the shitter's full joke isn't very funny. The the joke that makes me laugh in this movie is Clark saying, "Hey kids, the weatherman just said Santa Claus is over Chicago," and Eddie says, "You serious, Clark?"
2: <laughs> it's the funniest joke in the whole movie. It's the sincerity.
1: <laughs> He's genuinely curious if the weather, in fact, did report that. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a great joke, which makes this movie immediately better than The Grinch because it has that little gem tucked away. <laughs> Another thing that I felt like was going to get set up in this scene is there's the point made about Eddie's dog uh, humping legs and him saying, you know, you just want to let him finish. I thought, like, I refer to it as Chekhov's dog humping, where I'm like, well, that's going to come back. Like, there's no way this movie that has been nothing but fucking in the rv and tits on the you know potential adulteress was gonna give up an opportunity to have a dog hump a leg and it never happens in this movie like it's a cloud that hangs over the movie for me
2: the consolation prize to that is the comment around how the dog is drinking the water from the tree stand because if he drinks it all the tree will dry out and that's at least set up and paid off a little bit later although I would have loved to have seen the dog humping someone to completion
1: I have a theory about that 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 scene actually was filmed for this movie and it's when Ju- Julia Louis-Dreyfus uh, gets chased out of the house and the dog chases after her and then she shows up at her place all fucking haggard uh, I think that they shot the scene and then somebody was like whoa 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 whoa! we, <laughs> we can have you know, serial killer father Chevy Chase. And we can do the tits and we can do the shitter and we can have a fuck in this movie, but we can't have bestiality. That's where this movie's going to have to draw the line.
2: (laughs) The advent calendar opens up and we are now on December 18th. So we're getting close. And uh, when do these kids go to school? Because, I mean, we're a week out from Christmas and not one of these kids has even entered in anything that closely resembles... Uh, an educational facility.
1: But. Oh, you know, he's got him homeschooled now, Chad. <laughs> to the point about it, like the advent calendar opened up. When I saw it was December 18th, I was like, oh shit. It's a week away. It's a <laughs> lot of movie.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the next scene, Clark goes to visit his boss and deliver a Christmas present. And it's wrapped up in a shape that is identical to like 15 other packages that this boss has already received. And it's here that his boss calls him Greaseball. Mm. And uh, Clark says, I hope the work I gave you, you know, helped out with the trade show because he'd yet asked for that earlier. And so, so his boss basically is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thanks a lot. You know, Grizz and. Uh, I'm a jerk and, uh, I, I needed to be interjected back in this movie. So at the very end, you'll remember me from the beginning, because if not, it's completely, uh, absence of my presence and it doesn't make any sense that I'm in the finale. <laughs> right. Next thing, Clark and his kids and Eddie are up on this hilltop and they're going to go sledding. Clark put some lubricant that he stole from his work on the bottom of this round disc sled. And, you know, Eddie was going to steal that lube for a little rv after dark sexy sure. rodent time let me let me spray this on your
1: butthole <laughs> just science honey i just want to see
2: clark gets on this sled and it defies the laws of physics because it blasts off like a rocket with fire and it just crashes into snowbanks, and it zooms across a highway and flies in front of a green screen <laughs> and it goes so far that he ends up crashing into a donation bin in front of a sam walton era walmart because this movie regularly doesn't know how to end a scene uh it, this is a good example it cuts back to eddie and the kids that are seriously like a mile and a half away from wherever he ended up they can't see where clark is and then cousin eddie you get a close-up shot of his head and he goes bingo which you know <laughs> right. Is that his catchphrase?
1: I was I was like I was trying to remember back is he like, you know, got some family matters level zinger that he whips out like the old cousin eddie bingo
2: i just think that nobody had a mouthful of liquid for a spit take and the foley artist had left for the day to not provide the that's required to let you know this is the end of the hilarious moment
1: all right but so then the advent calendar what the advent calendar taketh away it also giveth because when i saw the 18th i was like shit that's like at least seven more scenes and then (laughs) instead it jumps ahead it's like december 21st boom on the next advent calendar i'm like great three days that i didn't have to watch fantastic and he's back at work talking with sam mcmurray and this is the scene where i'm like i didn't realize they were
2: friends but i guess they are in this movie i like how clark is sitting in his office doing something that's best described as not working (laughs) right grab assery uh i've got fucking off scheduled between two o'clock and five o'clock I'm going to sit here and play with my 3D model of a swimming pool. I like the way that the diving board goes (laughs) when I flick it.
1: Yeah, I'm just going to, you know, do a little uh, cloud bursting here this afternoon. You know, just start thinking about what it is I'm going to do with the next few days.
2: Sprit some of that lubrication on my butthole as my cousin Eddie recommended (laughs) I do
1: in fairness he tells Sam McMurray oh this is my last day before my Christmas vacation (laughs) so yeah so I'm sure he's just like look man I ain't starting nothing new (laughs) I'm going I'm gonna be gone for the next 10 so hmm." I mean if the phone rings I'm not not gonna answer it
2: but in this scene Clark Asks his co worker, hey, did you get your bonus check? And he says, yeah, something arrived from a courier. And he's like, how about you? He's like, no, not yet. And he's like, you know, I kind of fucked up because I've spent all this money. And at this point, you kind of feel bad for Clark because, you know, he's a bit in over his head. And that level of sympathy that you feel for this character is immediately dispersed in the next scene where we see Clark in his kitchen at night looking out the window into his backyard. And we get a dream sequence where he is envisioning his family enjoying this new swimming pool. Yeah. And in this dream, Cousin Eddie shows up for some comic relief, and it's kind of funny. His his outfit he's wearing is a little you know wacky and crazy, and he's drinking beer and just being Cousin Eddie. And then suddenly, the female sales clerk from the lingerie section of whatever department store he was in, she shows up in this dream sequence in a red swimsuit, and she proceeds to strip it off in Clark's imagination. And it's kind of a mashup of the uh, Christy Brinkley scene from the first movie and Phoebe Cates's pool scene from Fast Times at Ridgemont High.
1: Yeah, it's a real stroke flick all of a sudden. I like the fact that this includes this holiday classic Chad includes a little side boob here from the sales girl and then immediately he gets busted by a little tiny girl.
2: Yeah, he's standing there having this nighttime pool sex <laughs> fantasy. Right. And as it reaches its crescendo, and he's got a full-on erection, this eight-year-old little girl comes walking into the kitchen saying, Hey, are you Santa Claus? What? Again, the fact
1: that this movie had the restraint not to show him with a boner as he turned around is to the film's credit. I wouldn't have put it past this movie. But yeah, it is a total, like... You know, I've I've been sitting here thinking about this sales girl definitely rubbing it. And this girl, little girl, busted me. And now I'm going to sit down and have a conversation about is there a Santa Claus or not. And it is one of the more uncomfortable scenes in this movie.
2: You know that during the whole conversation, his dick is just slowly... Deflating in his pink, purple, and green dinosaur pajama pants. He is the
1: brush of a hand away from going right back from six to midnight.
2: <laughs> I also don't like it that the little girl asks him if he's Santa Claus. <laughs> the only person who can use the phrase Santa Claus is Louis Armstrong. That's it, right? Yeah. I'm really curious about this little girl's dialogue in this scene because it's written in such a way that she's supposed to be poorly educated or ignorant, which first, if you're going to do that, you use the word ain't. That is the go-to crutch to let audiences know that you're not educated. Instead, when this little girl speaks about her brother, she uses the word him instead of the word he in her speech. And she says him's nervous because Christmas is almost here, which makes her sound more like Jar Jar Binks in this particular scene than it does an inbred, ignorant, you know, backwater child victim of adult incest which is clearly what she right. is.
1: Yeah. She's, she's a half step away from a nil.
2: Clark goes from being this fantasizing philanderer to a compassionate uncle in this scene uh, with this little girl. And he tells her that, Hey, look, Santa Claus always comes and visits our house. And the little girl's like, Hey, we don't ever get anything. Cause we're poor. And my dad's a deadbeat. And he's like, well, you know what? I, I can guarantee you're going to get something this year, which Clark is in financial straits. He's how don't know how the hell he's going to help pay for this kid's Christmas. But you know, through the good of his heart and, I don't know what a bunch of credit that he may have he besides to pony up a little later but
1: for God's sakes in the scene he's asking her like hey did you see somebody come to the house cuz I'm I'm kind of looking for something it's like he was getting weed delivered to him on christmas or something
0: <laughs>
1: he's like I, I need to know if it came did you see somebody was somebody at the door did you see an envelope and and she's like no nah, i haven't seen shit man <laughs> <And> <laughs> that you
2: know you know why cuz that's how she was raised right. hey did you see a guy come to the house today uh uh-uh. uh i ain't seen shit
1: pig. you sure until uh-uh. <laughs> so she was taught it
2: in this scene kind of like the moment where he's in the attic watching the old reel-to-reel films of children going to and from school the scene with this little girl feels like it should be one of those heartfelt moments that lives in a john hughes movie where you're able to take sort of the ridiculous silliness of the broader narrative and focus it at a moment of poignancy or sincerity it doesn't really work here but it feels like that's what this scene should be as well
1: yeah it it aims for emotion a couple of times but it's just constantly undone by shitting bricks and shitting rocks i mean that stuff like him just like this whole scene is again is coming off the heels of him jerking off in his kitchen imagining the (laughs) shop girl going in a pool that he is he can't afford I'm just like, I can't get behind this character. Like, when he sits down with his imaginary boner.
2: It's not imaginary.
1: (laughs) Well, a boner born of his imagination, Chad. He was... I misunderstood. Theater of the boner mind, if you will. (laughs) And... (laughs) and talking to this little girl it's like this couldn't be any creepier how does anybody (laughs) let a family watch this at christmas and but in the next day to make it worse he's like i'm home for good now i'm starting my vacation (laughs) (laughs) everyone is on edge i can keep up with all of you now This is where he sees, like, in the morning, Eddie is, you know, emptying the shitter. Had to empty the shitter.
2: I do like that Eddie is, in one hand, holding the hose that is just spraying this fountain of liquid feces into the sewer. But in the other hand, he has a can of Meisterbrow and a cigar. You know, that hand's working double duty. I,
1: yeah, I mean, that's a funny combination of things to have in your hand, for sure. I just don't want to see big soupy shits in my. <laughs> Christmas movie. I mean, call me old-fashioned. If I'm watching a film that's set around Christmas that I, like for a movie that is aiming for, I don't know what audience, like 14-year-olds? Because you can't watch it with a 10-year-old, or you shouldn't. And then, as an adult, it's just so silly and goofy and doesn't hang together. There are times when I'm watching this, I'm like, I don't even know who this is for. And no scene more than the shitter's full scene, where I'm like, who is Like, when they were directing this movie, they were like, man, I'll tell you who's gonna (laughs) love this
2: (laughs) so you're saying if in it's a wonderful life (laughs) yeah if jimmy stewart had asked what do you want what do you want the moon i'll lasso it for you actually what i would like for you to do is pour a river of shit into the sewer and let me watch and smell it as you (laughs) cleanse the tank from this recreational vehicle
1: as george bailey sings buffalo gal you want you want the shits mary here they are the whole the whole the whole spindly town, from Mister Potter to other references from that movie.
2: Your Jimmy Stewart is a lot like your M M at Walsh.
1: It, well, I think they're kind of the same actor. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Eddie Murphy
2: in those clump movies.
1: Yeah had had he chosen to do so, uh, M M, M. At Walsh could have played Jimmy Stewart in the Jimmy Stewart story. <laughs> in Russia and have Jimmy Stewart movies. Um so Ellen is telling Clark like hey I don't think Eddie has any money to get stuff for the kids for christmas and clark is like yeah yeah let me tell you about the boner i had last night and then the conversation (laughs) that followed and then we we go to walmart where chad we see some great deals as chevy chase and eddie go shopping eddie is piling onto uh the cart three 40 pound bags of dog food
2: i don't think that food's for the dogs
1: yeah i mean have you really Done the back of the envelope math, Chad, on how much money you would save.
2: If you just ate dog food? Yes.
1: Dry dog food. But you get the good stuff. The stuff that turns into gravy.
2: <laughs> yeah. In this scene, Clark agrees to pay for Eddie's kids Christmas. And Eddie is at first reluctant, but then he agrees and he whips out a Christmas list for the whole family. and. Right.
1: It was a big grift. Once again, we're faced with a grifter in a film, and it's Eddie. Eddie's been on the grift for a while, and he's just hitting bottom is all.
2: That's when you attack your family. Right.
1: Like he is he is the uh Angelica Houston of, of this film, uh in the Grifter's analogy. <laughs> like just just on the edge. After going to to Walmart and, and agreeing to help uh, Eddie uh, with the kids' gifts, and also Eddie's kind of an asshole for pulling the the list stunt. Uh, just like, come on, man, pretend like you were just like, oh, I, I think I have some ideas, uh, or here's the list they gave me. Like, just don't lie, is what I'm saying. I think that's a good good, good advice for everyone. It's now Christmas Eve. Clark has to go pick up even older relatives, because what we need to do at this point in the movie is introduce new characters. And it turns out it's William Hickey of, I don't know, the old person in every movie ever fame.
2: He was the voice of the evil scientist in The Nightmare Before Christmas.
1: (laughs) He's been in, good lord, like hundreds of movies, it seems like. And even when he was a young man, he was like the old Italian dude that was ordering a hit
2: his wife aunt bethany is played by Mae Questel. yeah and the majority of her career was doing the voice of olive oil and betty boop and as soon as you know that that is the only thing you can hear when she talks in this movie
1: as soon as you hear her speak it's like oh that's betty boop and i think she's actually kind of funny in this movie
2: well of course i mean it it, it, when you have a character that makes nonsensical remarks because they're suffering from (laughs) alzheimer's Or some other form of dementia. Sure. That's fun.
1: It is to me. They
2: don't know where they are or what they're saying. Let, hold on. Shh. Everyone be quiet. Aunt Bethany's about to spout a bunch of nonsensical bullshit. Let's all laugh at her.
1: Let's hope it's not racist this time.
2: <laughs> Let's hope it is.
1: Yeah. She's probably got a thing or two to say about what's going on in this country. <laughs> and it's going to happen anytime.
2: Uncle Lewis in this, he certainly is willing to give you his opinion on any manner of minorities in the country oh absolutely aunt bethany has brought presents for everyone and it turns out that one of her presents she wrapped up her cat and in the other one is a box of lime jello and it's here that rusty asks his parents like hey what's up with aunt bethany and they're like oh she's hilarious she has dementia cousin eddie comes over and gets in on the conversation which it's at this point as you noted earlier it ends with eddie telling uh, rusty hey let's go find your sister which Again, she better look out or go make sure she has fresh breath because either way, she's going to have to put up a fight or just, you know, lean into it. She keeps a
1: really long key on her at all times, you know, for fighting. (laughs) It's now Christmas dinner and there's some business about Mae Kessel uh, saying the blessings and... And at first, she there's a, a like a who's on first thing about saying grace. Then she finally gets it, and she says the uh, or recites the the pledge of allegiance. Everybody kind of joins in. It's kind of a funny moment. Like this, some of this scene is when it feels most like the original story that Hughes wrote, and when it's like, okay, this is kind of this escalation of the absurd. I think, some fun ideas, if not executions, in, in this scene. And, like, when the turkey, uh, when he Clark goes to cut into it, and it just belches open this, like, desiccated sack of shit. You know, because it's been overcooked so much. I think that's kind of funny. And then there's this, again, this escalation of Eddie's dog turning over the trash. Uh, Uncle Lewis is like, hey, Clock, while you up, get me a cigar, will you? And the cat's chewing lights in this scene. And I know I'm going with fast, but like all this stuff is kind of going on just bam 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 kind of one right after the other which culminates in clark plugging in the christmas lights that have come he believes unplugged uh and we saw the cat chewing on them earlier and then it fries the cat that's uh hiding under a chair
2: it more than fries the cat this cat gets incinerated by electricity like the cat is gone yeah it's like a marvin the martian
1: ray hit it And it's just like
2: this
1: (laughs) black streaks emanating out from the source of what would have been a cat. Yeah,
2: well, then after this, Clark and Eddie pick up this chair that was damaged by this, you know, feline combustion out to the curb. And there's a growing pile of trash. The chair, the damaged uh, Santa Claus and reindeer, the sled that, you know, the bottom is burnt out. It's all sort of piling up because I guess trash runs once a month in this neighborhood. And it's here we get a reminder that Eddie has filled the sewer full of shit and it's illuminated by this green glowing light and it just looks like the birthplace of the ninja turtles i don't know what is going on in the sewers of this city but it is definitely not healthy
1: you say ninja turtles i say chuds (laughs) or both yeah uh i you know i just prefer daniel stern in my movies or
2: jay thomas
1: sure or john goodman is in chud for about uh, 90 seconds Chud is a great movie and I stand by that. After they take the chair outside and we see the Chud gas floating up from the sewers, we head back to dinner and uh, Uncle Lewis is lighting up his cigar, which just flash burns the tree. It just goes up like a light because, again, it's all dry.
2: Yeah, it just leaves a burnt wooden skeleton of its former self.
1: Right, it's a real cartoon, like, poof, and now it's just a burnt skeleton uh, uh, tree. And
2: that's what this movie should be more of. Yes. And at times it is, but then, to your point, you get this wide-eyed Clark Griswold of, is he going to go and show us where the bodies are buried? tonally it just shifts it feels like it should be a Warner Brothers cartoon at times but then it just downshifts and upshifts in such a haphazard fashion that it's never consistent in what it's trying to deliver both in in jokes and narrative and storyline and character portrayal
1: yeah and the tone I mean does it want to be like this adult satire of isn't it fucking awful when your relatives come for Christmas or does it want to be a broad Christmas comedy it wants to have it both ways the stuff with the sales clerk and stuff like that that belongs in an r-rated film where you're talking about like yeah you know the dad's kind of a lech but you know he's he's kind of everyone's dad that looks a little too long you know been married to the same woman for 20 years blah 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 but that's not the goofy character that we're trying to pull off here. I don't know. Just like none of it adds up, like you were saying. And, and in a second, there's a, a, you know, a big example of this because this shit just keeps piling on. Like a kid shows up from the delivery service with what is theoretically the bonus, And Chevy Chase has this big speech and apparently the whole family is in on the fact that he's horrible with money and like he comes clean he's like you know before I open this I just want to say that I irresponsibly decided to put a down payment on a pool without having the money to do so I wrote this feloniously bad check (laughs) This envelope this bonus check had not come in time we would have all been out on the streets and eventually would have had to feed off one another to survive but thank christ here is the bonus check and he opens it up and sure enough it's a year's subscription to the jelly of the month club
2: this is where you should see the one and only major meltdown of clark griswold yes and his meltdown in this movie is very funny and chevy chase does an excellent job of delivering it in the scene clark says what he wants for christmas is for his boss to be taken from his home and brought there so that clark can tell his boss what he thinks of him and clark delivers this great string of profanity that's not really profanity it's what i would imagine it would be like if yosemite sam enunciated better <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, very much so, and it's an, another example of like if you're gonna do this, fucking go for it or don't or or I because I don't think it works with all the the gobbledygook made up curse words. I I don't like this scene. I don't know that Chevy Chase's performance of it is bad. It's just like I I can't take it seriously because it's all crazy made up words. It feels like this movie wants. Wants to have him do the fuck scene from like play trains and automobiles or something and just doesn't have the balls to do
2: it or they're trying to get away with that PG-13 rating and they can't go that
1: far and that's exactly what it is so it feels like this piece of writing that is rewritten to accommodate an audience that I don't think this movie was initially intended for.
2: Cousin Eddie has a light bulb moment and we see the RV heading off into the Christmas Eve night. Clark emerges from the garage with his chainsaw, sans hockey mask this time. He cuts down a tree in his own front yard, which falls and explodes through Margo and Todd's window while they're eating their Christmas Eve dinner, which should immediately be followed by the following conversation. Hello, 911? Yeah, it's me again. (laughs) Yeah, the Griswold house. Thank you. Right and there's actually a moment here where I genuinely
1: like Julia Louis-Dreyfus' character because before the tree comes crashing in like as they're eating dinner she's like are you sure you don't want to get a tree and he's like no we said that was you know too blase or whatever and she's like are you sure? and like there's this actual human moment in this film where it's like oh yeah she's living this lifestyle but it's also this thing of like oh but you know at the same time it's Christmas and having a Christmas tree would be nice that's interrupted of course by the actual Christmas tree coming through the window because why on earth would a seemingly decent person want a nice thing and not be punished for
2: it clark's upstairs washing his hands and he's kind of manic as ellen is trying to calm him down and then as clark leaves (laughs) the bathroom he still has his chainsaw and he touches the stairpost, which is loose so clark cuts it off with said chainsaw Uh, a dramatic measure to be sure and this is a nod to it's a wonderful life (sighs) right i think think so i that's what i thought i was like maybe
1: right but just also get the good name of it's a wonderful life out of your filthy mouth christmas vacation as (laughs) we interrupt this scene where the mask has fallen away from the true face of a sociopath we we want to do a nod to one of the greatest films of all time go fuck yourself christmas vacation
2: Clark's replacing presents under the tree that are now wrapped in newspaper and other random fabrics he's also decorating the tree with thong underwear that i'm guessing are the ones that he bought from the star of his late night kitchen fantasy jerk-off sessions
1: they're they're audrey's unfortunately like i said this is dog tooth, man it gets dark
2: <laughs> barf so aunt bethany says she hears something squeaking around and everyone gets all quiet and then a squirrel pops out of this new christmas tree that he's brought into the house and then everyone just freaks the fuck out they're running from room to room and then clark comes up with a plan to catch the squirrel and then smash it with a hammer which the first half of that plan is great the back half of it is disturbing <laughs>
1: right well and the kids react in the way that you would expect when they've seen their father end a life with a hammer before. (laughs) they know what's coming
2: this scene goes on way too long it ends with the dog chasing the squirrel around and the house gets destroyed even more than one would imagine and then we cut back over to the neighbors and Margot calls todd a pussy for not going over and handling the christmas tree griswold situation so Margot says she's going to go over there and handle the whole thing like a man and kick clark's ass which is the most sensible response from a character in the entire movie so far (laughs) Margot goes over to the griswold house but before she can knock clark opens the door the squirrel jumps out onto margo's chest where she is ceremoniously tackled by snot the rottweiler in pursuit of said squirrel and clark just closes the door on this woman he just he doesn't give a shit like all right well not my problem could click which he's a horrible human being
1: right it's like she is now being openly attacked by wildlife Yeah, it's not a bear. But you should probably just make sure she's okay.
2: So Ellen's parents decide they're done. They're going to leave the house, which it's Christmas Eve. I don't know if they live in this town. If they do, why are they sleeping there? If they don't, where are they going? Old people don't drive at night. Any fool knows that.
1: (laughs) So this is the point where just Clark traps everyone in the house.
2: He uses his one moment to say fuck in the movie during this scene. In front of young children, mind you. Oh, sure.
1: Because this is a, a, a great family. Christmas film um all the families are like we're gonna get the fuck out of here man like none of this is going well and then clark is like fuck that everyone's staying right here nobody's leaving this house not alive not this christmas clark's dad then comes in to tell him like look you screwed things up but that's what happens again this is a scene that belongs in a christmas movie unlike 30 percent of the other ones his dad uh does reveal that the way he made it through his christmases with uh clark and the wife were just drinking just good old-fashioned drinking Uh, well
2: no shit booze is how everybody gets through the holidays and most weekends and hell most nights let's be honest the majority of the work day i think i've said too much (laughs) also i think this scene would be a lot more effective
1: if clark and his father had had like i don't know five other lines with each other at some point in the movie where it's like oh yeah that's right they're father and son i almost forgot about that
2: i do like that when his dad calls him out he's like hey you know you, you you tried your best to provide the perfect christmas but you cocked it up yeah i love that phrase that you cocked it up
1: yeah i do too <laughs>
2: you,
1: you cocked it right up but the scene kind of lands or should land on an emotional beat that doesn't really work where clark tells his dad like hey it's time for you to go read uh twas the night before christmas his father says no 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 you know i'm retiring this is your home it's your christmas you go read the story, and so Clark does, and this is when Eddie returns with Clark's boss, Brian Doyle Murray.
2: He's all gagged and he's got a big red bow on him, and Eddie kicks him in the ass to make him move along to get in the house. <laughs> Randy Quaid is so funny in this movie. There's one little brushstroke I want to go back and mention at the dinner table when they're all eating. He takes his can of Meisterbrow and he pours it into the stemware glass to drink out of. <laughs> And that just cracks me up.
1: Another right-thinking individual, the wife of Brian Doyle Murray, Mrs. Shirley, uh, is reporting this crime to the police. Or she's like, hey, somebody busted in and took my husband on Christmas Eve. Clark basically explains the cost of you know, getting rid of the bonuses on the workforce. In his case, it's being irresponsible with money, but he does rightfully say, like, hey, you know, people count on it, like, this is the first time in 14 years we haven't gotten a bonus and you never even told anybody.
2: During this whole speech, you can see the outline of Eddie's dick in his pants.
1: (laughs) I did not notice that, but I will... I might go back and watch it just for that. Uh, I'll catch it on TV. It'll be coming up. You know, because it's a holiday classic, Chad. It's on all over the place.
2: The boss
1: then has a change of heart. Mr. Shirley is like, you know what? I never really thought about it before. But the way that Brian Doyle Murray delivers this line of like, you know, Clark, maybe I just never really put a face to things. I really cocked it up. I'm just taking it for a walk. (laughs) and it seems like such an insincere and sarcastic delivery and i think it's just because that's what i expect from brian doyle murray but it doesn't land well and it sounds like he might as well have his like fingers crossed like as soon as i get out of here you're all going to fucking jail
2: (laughs) (laughs) he agrees to give clark his bonus plus 20 percent
1: whatever that was like movie why are you making me like solve for x on this (laughs) Why don't you just be like take whatever you had last year and double it? And that's all you gotta say, not uh, plus twenty percent. Twenty percent of what? Is that good? Is that bad?
2: You know he was only giving that bonus to Clark, like in the whole company. That was just him. He's like, you know what, fuck it. I'll give this one asshole a bonus plus twenty percent. I'm not giving anybody else any other
1: money. And then I'll reduce everyone else's by point zero eight percent, so it all comes out to wash. (laughs) <laughs> at this
2: point the house is overrun by cops arriving with their lights flashing and sirens blaring there are six or seven patrol cars each with multiple police officers in them they swarm the house guns drawn like they're on the roof ready to rappel down for some reason they break into Margot's house next door cops are everywhere yeah. they burst into the house through multiple windows just destroying the home even more than it already was all the cops yell free everyone in the house freezes and ellen's hand is cupping clark's dick i don't know why she's doing that <laughs> and then the boss man's wife comes in and the boss is like hey uh, i didn't get my bonus but i got the christmas spirit so uh everything's cool they don't have to go to jail wink wink they're all going to jail
1: <laughs> yeah also i don't think that's how it works <laughs> Like, I think if a crime, like I don't think it's like a, a kidnapping is I'm not pressing charges kind of thing.
2: Fuck you aren't. <laughs> right?
1: Like, it doesn't matter, Jack. He forcibly took you from your home. That's against the law, even if you say it's not. (laughs) you can't mulligan a felony it turns out
2: the two little redneck kids run out on the lawn and they look up in the sky and see a shooting star and then the whole cast comes out on the lawn and uncle lewis lights his stogie and tosses a match into the ninja turtle chud sewer drain which explodes sending some Trash Christmas garbage from the curb high into the air, among which is a plastic Santa and his reindeer. So it soars across this harvest moon that is ever present throughout this film. Aunt Bethany starts singing the last half of the Star Spangled Banner, and everyone just kind of joins in. And then everybody in the movie, including the police officers and the SWAT team, are all just inside this house singing and dancing and drinking. The cops are there, the family's there, because of course they are. This movie makes no sense at all.
1: (laughs) Right. I admire the fact that one of the last shots of this movie is the Griswolds, the man they kidnapped and his wife, and a bunch of, like, SWAT team members, all singing the Star Spangled Banner, uh, with their hands on their hearts as a shit-propelled lawn ornament goes across the moon. Like, I can look at that on paper and say, like, that's a funny idea of bringing all those disparate things together. So, I kinda like that's where we land with this movie, and I wish it had just ended there, but it doesn't I, that's the problem
2: clark kisses ellen on the front lawn and then mm. ellen leaves <laughs> yeah i bet he did ellen leaves and then clark stands alone on the lawn and then says the three-word sentence i did it which sounds to me more like the confession of robert durst at the end of the jinx <laughs> I think Clark Griswold is essentially saying, I am guilty of horrible, unspeakable crimes that weren't even touched on in this motion picture.
1: Right. Like, the family is probably in on the dungeon attic now. Uh, (laughs) They've seen me lose my shit pretty good at this point. And if Ellen decides that she's going to tell one of them that it it ain't just Christmas when that happens, (laughs) I could be in some real trouble. I don't think that... I can let anyone go home this year. That's why we never make it all the way to Christmas Day in this movie. Because Christmas Day is the massacre.
2: I don't think anyone in that household, including the police officers, see December 26th. No, and then the words "The end just pop up on the screen, which are like, "Oh, the movie's over, but then not really because then we get a pan out shot of Clark with Snots the dog standing on the lawn for an uncomfortably long time until they finally fade to black and then roll credits.
1: Yeah, I kept waiting for something to happen there, and it never does it it It's a little head scratching why
2: you wanted to see that dog hump his leg or yeah.
1: Because it got set up earlier, like, Eddie just mentions that he likes to hump legs. That's the whole joke, I guess. That just doesn't feel like enough of a joke to be a thing. Like, here's this thing you're never gonna see, but let me tell you about it. That dog right there on on camera (laughs) humps legs. Wouldn't that be funny if you saw it? It happened. You'll never see it.
2: So that is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation.
1: Yeah. A family holiday classic.
2: Filled with side boob, fits of rage, alcoholics. attic Dungeons incestuous pedophiles
1: <laughs> yeah yeah like i said i can't believe that this somehow snuck its way into being a, like a holiday mainstay it does not seem to me to be a movie either funny enough or just wholesome enough i i can almost get behind it if it were like yeah it's you know meet the parents broad comedy but it's inoffensive and it says something about commercialism or whatever and that's another thing in this movie like the lesson of this movie is money solves every problem (laughs) as soon as he gets the bonus from brian doyle murray it's smooth sailing man money is what saved the day
2: (laughs) i thought the lesson of this movie was just don't (laughs) (laughs) what don't try just in general like hey are you thinking about doing something yeah just don't okay you're right (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't think it's very good
1: it's a it's a bad movie it's not grinch bad
2: so if you're looking for something that's worse than the grinch have i got a treat for you and it's a little (laughs) it's a little holiday classic called jingle all the way starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sinbad in pursuit of the most difficult to find toy of the holiday season, which will be our featured film on episode three of this season, the war on Christmas movies. And Bo, I really think that you will potentially find something that's worse than the Grinch in this film. I know you haven't seen it at this point. Uh, I both envy and pity you as you, uh, (laughs) step into this particular film because it is a terrible.
1: Yeah, yeah, this is one of those that because I'm not a particular fan of Christmas movies, I just never had a good excuse to ever watch and and I can't wait. I'm excited.
2: Excellent. So we invite everyone to come back next week. Join us as we will be jingling all of the way and continuing this season of holiday festivities. So, both thank you so much. Thank you everyone. Like, rate, review, share, send us a comment. You know how the internet works and we will see you next week on Pick 6 Movies.